Good morning. It's good morning again. It's good to be with you right now. And uh, good to have made it out of the morning. I don't know. I, I know we've already said it, but I don't know if the implication has gotten to people. So like for me, I have two little kids, especially my four-year-old. And uh, on a Sunday morning, not having my wife around because she's at this uh, pastor's wives retreat, Made this morning quite the challenge, but it, it was it was fun. We made it. We are we are good, and let's uh, let's uh, get into the word. You know, I are there any bikers among us? Does anybody ri- ride their bikes? No, no bikers. Okay, well, oh, okay. Hudson, Hudson, and Jake ride their bikes. Okay, so. In, in the last year or so, we've started biking pretty regularly. Uh, we, we pretty much do a, some kind of a exercise every morning. We either go hiking or we go biking. And, uh, and we like biking, at least me and Deanna like biking a little more because uh, it goes faster. Uh, we could get through it. But for a little while, while I was biking, it became really, really difficult. And I didn't really know why. I thought, well, maybe there's a lot of wind coming against me. But then it was like both directions. It felt like there was wind. It just, it, biking got really, really difficult for, for about a week. And I was like, something is wrong with my bike. So finally, I, I took a closer, I stopped, I took a closer look at it. And I realized, so, so the brakes that I have, they're called V-brakes. And they have like these two things that push in at the top and they squeeze a brake against the rim and there's springs that push it back out. Well, it had gotten out of adjustment and the brake was leaning this way. And so the wheel, the entire time was basically braking. And somehow I didn't notice this, but it was very, very difficult compared to not having your brake going while you're biking. You just have to pedal that much harder there. there, You know, there's no coasting. It's just like pushing hard the whole time because your uh, bike is braking. So eventually I figured it out. And and so what I would do, I I knew I needed to take it into the shop because I don't know how to adjust the brakes myself. But I thought, no, I'll get to that eventually. What I'll do is I'll just kind of pull the brake over because if I would pull it, it would basically go straight. But as soon as I hit a bump, it went back and it would start causing the problem again. So I went on this way for about three more weeks before I finally said, okay, I need to take the bike into the shop to get this brake fixed. Well, in our passage that we're going to look at today in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the Christian life in a way that is like that bike ride where what we tend to do as Christians, as we, as we, as we live our lives is we tend to take this bike that God has given us. That is a, a, a a well-oiled, perfectly in good shape machine. And we tend to just let it break or have issues. and, and, And it's very, very difficult when what we need to do is we need to address and fix the problems. Not do what I do, did and ignore the problem for like four weeks before I finally go in and get it fixed. Because I'll tell you what, as soon as I got that bike back from the shop, I also had them kind of adjust the gears and get everything running in like tip-top shape. I mean, all, the bike all of a sudden was like riding, it felt like butter. I don't know how else to describe it. It was so smooth, like the way it was always meant to be. Well, let's, let's look today at Hebrews, and we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Um, I'm going to kind of just 
catch us up a little bit here in a second, and I'll kind of review uh, what went on in Hebrews 11 and even the whole, whole book just to kind of get us to that spot. But let's just uh, briefly, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on this time. Father God, we thank you again this morning for bringing us here. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Hebrews and that it has been given to us and that we can look into it today, that we can study from it, that it can speak truth to us. Father, help me to proclaim that truth. Keep me from speaking any kind of error. Father, use this time for your honor, for your glory, and for the growing of your saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the letter of Hebrews a letter that we don't know who wrote it. We don't really know who it was to other than a general Jewish audience. It has a basic message, and it's most basic. It makes the case that Jesus is the best, most perfect revelation of God ever, essentially because he is God in the flesh. It makes the case again and again throughout it that, that, that Christ is superior to angels, that Christ is, is superior to, to, to Moses, that Christ is superior in every way to every other way that God has ever been revealed because he is the exact imprint of God. That's the basic picture that's painted in the book of Hebrews up until chapter 11. And then in chapter 11, we get to a section of scripture that, that's, that's really well known. Uh, Hebrews 11 is what we, you know, we call it the, some people call it the hall of faith. Um, it, we, we have all of these, all of these people laid out as examples, particularly people from the Old Testament laid out as examples of faith. And we see that they are ultimately saved by faith. Now, he gives a definition. The author gives a definition of in Hebrews Chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. So faith, as the author of Hebrews describes it, is this assurance that we have, this, this knowledge and feeling that, hey, everything is going to work out in a certain way. In particular, it's talking about our faith in Christ, our faith in God to do what he promised to do, to give us relationship with him through the completed work of Christ. And so, so we have this assurance of things that we hope for, a conviction, a firmly seated belief in things that we have not seen, but we, we know to be true. We've had these this knowledge given to us. And, and if you were to go throughout Hebrews 11, it gives us example after example. It gives us Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Moses. And then it gives us a whole list of people that it says, I don't even have time to tell you about all of these other people. All of these people held up as examples of faith. And this leads us to what it describes in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 11, the desire that all of these examples of faith had to see a heavenly city, as the chapter calls it. Basically, what it's making the point is that all of these people, their hope was not in some human, earthly, temporal deliverance and salvation, but it was ultimately a hope that led to salvation just as ours is today. And then the chapter, chapter 11 ends 
with these words in verse 39 and 40, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Did you hear that? Did you hear what I just read? They did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You see, they were given a promise that, that, that God would make things right. But they didn't receive it. Not fully. But they had hope in something that they could not see and something that they ultimately went to the grave without seeing. But that thing is not a thing, but God, the son, Jesus Christ, who reconciled people with God, who paid the penalty, who bore the weight and was ultimately raised victorious. And even as we acknowledge during the ascension, ultimately ascended back to heaven. But let's look, and I'm going to read a passage here in Hebrews chapter 12. This is going to be a scripture reading for our sermon today and where we're going to focus our time. Starting in verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have to endure god is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline you are left without discipline in which all have participated. Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In this text, we see a few things. But I want to focus first on these first two verses. These first two verses. And he uses, the author here uses an example of running with weight. He, he, he's using an example of a race. Okay? 
And, and it's not a, a, a short distance race. It's not a sprint. He's talking about basically running a marathon. And he uses this example of, of, of shedding weight. It says, let us lay aside every weight and sin. So the weights obviously are representing sin, which clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, the Christian life is like a, it's like a race, not a short-term one, a long-term one. And like that bike that I rode with the brake closed, we can run this race carrying a lot of weight. I know there's people here amongst us that like to go like backpacking and things like that. I, for a while, was hiking with Adeline on a backpack where I would carry her around. When she finally got big enough that I was able to take her out of the backpack and even not carry the backpack, hiking got so much easier. Because I wasn't bearing all this weight. Well, we run a race. And I think a lot of times we just carry this weight around. We carry our sin around. We hide it. We keep it to ourselves. We even nurture it. We think it's important. It would be like those of you who are backpackers saying, you know what? I'm going backpacking. I'm going to go on a really long trip. And I just, you know, I really think that I should take my, my, my set of weights with me so I can work out on the trail. So let me put these 50-pound plates, two of them, in my bag. You wouldn't do that. Why would you do that? That's ridiculous. But that's what we do when we hold on to our sin. Say, I'm, I'm supposed to be running this race with endurance, but I am weighing myself down with all this unneeded stuff. You know, we've seen in this text that that the Bible gives us all these models of enduring the faith. And we didn't look through chapter 11. We didn't explain all of them. But ultimately, just like the rest of the book, this passage is pointing out that with all of these models of faith, Jesus is even better. Jesus is the ultimate model of faith. That's why it says in verse 2, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Because what did he do? But you know what? He carried all that weight. The weight you want to put in your bag, the broken brake on your bike, whatever thing it is, that illustration that speaks to you, the point is that sin was born. On the cross. He says, for the joy that was set before him, he did what? He endured the cross. We say cross and we don't think about the full picture of what that is. A, a horrible Roman execution device. How was that joy before him? Well, the cross itself was not joy for him. But the joy of what was accomplished through it because of that, namely, specifically, the 
reconciliation of people, of sinners, lost and hopeless, you and me reconciled with God through his work on the cross. So because of that that joyous thing, that joyous reconciliation, Christ was willing to endure the cross, despising the shame, and ultimately he is now ascended, seated on the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is that ultimate model of endurance, even to the point of death on a cross. So the point in this first section is this. And what we're going to be talking about today is enduring to the end in faith. So the, the point in this first section is enduring to the end in faith requires the shedding of sin. Enduring to the end in faith requires the shedding of sin. You know, I... I'm going to speak for myself, but I think I've seen this in plenty of people too, even all Christians from time to time. Sometimes we act like, like we've arrived as Christians. Like we wouldn't actually say it, but we kind of act like, oh, I, I've got it all figured out. I, I, I don't have to, I don't, I, I just have to put out this image that, I, that I've gotten all perfect, that, that, I, that I don't sin anymore, and I certainly wouldn't want to tell anybody my struggles. I cer- cer- certainly wouldn't sh- want to share my burdens with people, or they might look at me and judge me and think, How, I can't believe he struggles with that sin, or I can't believe she would, she would do that. And you know what? Some people might act like that and might think that. But the truth is that they do equal things too. The fact is, as Christians, we don't have this figured out. But the truth is, is that our life, our Christian life, as we run this endurance race, is a race where we need to be seeking out these parts of our lives that are functioning as weights, that are holding us down, that are sins that have a grip on us and we need to shed those. We need to confess them. We need to repent of them through Christ because Christ bore that sin. Our next section we're going to look at is verses 3 through 11. And it starts off in the first couple of verses, verses three and four, showing that, that that shedding of sin that I just talked about, that, it, that it's actually a, a very real struggle. In that first point, when I just said it, I said, you know, shed the sin, and I made it sound like, like, like it would be as simple as, as taking a phone out of your pocket and, oh, I, I got rid of that. Let me just leave it there. Actually, phone coming out of the pocket is kind of a good example. Because what do we, sometimes we, we hold on to these phones and then it's like, ooh, you know, who won the game? Or, oh, who's messaging me now? And you just can't leave it there. The truth is, shedding sin is a very real struggle. 
It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You see, it is a struggle to resist sin, but your struggle is not unique. I mean, it doesn't mean that your struggle is exactly the same as everybody else's. But everybody has struggles. And the fact is, Christ struggled with, Christ was tempted. He didn't struggle with sin, but Christ faced temptation. We face temptation. We battle, we battle our sin. And ultimately, Christ shed blood for sin, yet our struggle does not surpass his. We did not, we have not struggled to the point of shedding blood. The next few verses, verses 5 through 11. tells us the story about how God disciplines us as a parent disciplines a child. We get the picture. We, we, we understand the illustration that, 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 that no parent will just allow their kid to damage themselves because of their ignorance. As parents, we recognize that our task as a parent is to raise our children in many ways, but at the very most basic way, our very most basic task as human parents is to raise our children to be independent humans. That's the very most basic thing. And to achieve that, we discipline. And I'm not going into like all the different forms of discipline and all of that. In one way or another, we find ways to discipline our children, to teach them that, that hey, the, the path you are heading down when you do that, that is leading to harm. That is leading to destruction. And the picture painted in these verses is that, yes, parents discipline their children, and they try to achieve a certain result in that discipline, but God disciplines us as his children. God chastises us. He quotes, in verses 5 and 6, he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3. And it says, have you, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here's the quote. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You see that the good news here is that Though we're called to shed sin, 
in order to endure to the end in faith. And even though that is a difficult task, we just acknowledge that. That first of all, it is possible to shed sin, not because you can do it, but because God is at work in your life. And so the second point is this, that enduring to the end in faith is possible because of the faithful work of God in your life. Because God brings consequences for sin in your life, not to punish you because the punishment has been poured out on Christ. Sometimes we, we, we fall into thinking, the thinking of Job's friends where it's like, you know, Job, all this bad stuff happened to you because you did something wrong. Well, Job had a very unique circumstance. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the circumstance I'm talking about here, but I'm saying we fall into the same trap as Job's friends. We think, oh, I must have sin. That's why this bad thing is happening. But no, your sin as a Christian has been paid for, meaning the punishment has been poured out already. So why, do sin have con- why does sin have consequences? Well, what did the verse in Proverbs that we just quoted in Hebrews say? It's because God loves you. Why do you discipline your children? Because you love them and you don't want them to be hurt. Well, God loves you. And so he brings circumstances into your life that point you back to him, that point you to repentance. So as a Christian, be thankful that you have this, that God chastens you, that God disciplines you. Be thankful that sin has negative consequences. And listen to God's Voice through these chastisements and respond in repentance. I want to go just a little further, and I didn't read I didn't read these when I read the scripture, but I want to read verses twelve through seventeen. It says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Notice this command that's being given is about others, not about you. It's about others. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. You see, this text ends, the, the, the passage ends in these verses that I just read with a reminder, not just that enduring to the end in faith is, requires shedding sin that's hard, and not just that God is at work in you to help you do it, but also that you are not to do this alone. 
Also, that as you live the Christian life, you don't do it solo. Because here, this is saying, hey, it just said basically, watch out for your own self, but also watch out for others. But the good news is that in a church, that means that you have a whole group of people that are watching out for you. That, that, that my job, not as pastor, perhaps also as pastor, but not even talking about as pastor, my job as church member is to know you and, and to know you well enough to say, hey, you are in trouble here. What you are doing is something that leads to destruction. Let's get you safe. Hey, you are are driving down the wrong side of the highway. Let's get you turned around. Hey, I I hear your bike riding down the road. I hear your brake squeaking. Check on that. Because the truth is, we're able to do this because we have others doing it with us. All of this, why did, I, why did I choose this passage? Now, this, this passage, obviously, just a standalone. It doesn't connect. We're not going to continue it next week. This was just, just here. Well, I, as a pastor, when you kind of approach that situation, you just, well, what, what is God putting on my heart? And devotionally and just my casual reading, I was reading through Hebrews. And the truth is, it's been a hard season for me recently. There's a lot that I've had to endure. And not even just for me. As, as a pastor, I get to be aware of a lot of situations in your lives. And I know that many of you are facing truly difficult times right now in your life. You know, this, this passage is about shedding sin, yes. But it's also about endurance, ultimately enduring in the faith. Sin holds us down. Sometimes when we're struggling, our, our sins can be, as this passage talked about, it can be bitterness. It can be looking to, to things to satisfy us in other ways, to, to, to get satisfaction in something other than God. Because we're, we're, we're in a low state, whatever it may be. But the truth is, is that this passage was really helpful to me. And as I as I read through it, as I studied through it, I just thought, you know, I, I, I think I want to share this. Because ultimately, all of this tells us that as we struggle, as we face our hardships, as we strive to endure, the ultimate answer is to look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And just as I, as I close I was going to read, uh, I picked up one of these hymnals from, from the pews, um, one of Alder Avenue Baptist Church's hymnals, because it, it just brought to mind as I reflected on this ultimate, ultimately looking upon Christ. I thought of a song that if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably sung this song. It says, oh soul, are you weary and troubled? 
No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The song goes on. You can, you can read it. It's, it's good. But, you know, the, the truth is we sing things like that. We sing words of praise. Sometimes we don't think about the things we're singing, and we obviously should be. But ultimately, as we do face hardships and struggles, look to Jesus. He is the one who has borne all for you.